The Gospel of Mark is much shorter than the other three Gospels, and on the surface, it seems like it is much plainer. And for years, scholars thought that the author of Mark was not as skilled as the other three authors for those other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. The text is blunt. In the transitions, famously, Mark is always saying, immediately this happened, immediately that happened. Everything is just immediately, and then the next, and the next. And actually, a lot happens in Mark. It's uh, way shorter in terms of chapters and in terms of words, but Jesus is a man of action in this book. He doesn't speak as much as he shows who he is by what he does. And often what he is busy doing is healing, revealing himself by the act of healing over and over and over again. It's also believed that the Gospel of Mark is the oldest of the Gospels. Uh, Scholars feel that it is likely that uh, especially Matthew and Luke looked at the way Mark had captured these stories and then they took a little more information they were able to gather and they added to them and then they put art into the language. And perhaps that, among other reasons, makes me especially fond of this blunt short book of the stories of Jesus's life. Perhaps it's a little bit closer to the source. And when you look more closely, you realize that there actually is art in the way that he tells the story, but you have to look for the subtleties. A lot is said in just a few words, and I find that it is worthwhile with this book of Mark to dwell in the words and to read it slowly. So I want to dwell in these words from the passage today and only the first part of the gospel passage because there is so much going on. First of all, notice that we are just in the first chapter of Mark's gospel. We're still just in chapter 1. It's verse 29 only. Mark skips the whole birth narrative. He doesn't talk about the virgin birth. He doesn't talk about the manger and wise men and shepherds. None of that. First, we learn about Jesus. He is an adult, and Mark shares with us the mystery being revealed of who he is, the Son of God. And then we get to watch everybody else stumbling around, not understanding what the reader has just been told throughout the rest of the book. But Jesus has done a lot in those first 28 chapters. He has been baptized by John in the Jordan, he's been tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He's called a number of disciples, and he has already done a lot of healing. And the last thing that we hear just before this passage that we heard today, the last detail we get before that is that his fame is already spreading throughout the land. And so now, he enters a home together with some of his disciples, with Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and they're actually in Simon Peter's home And we learn that Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever in the bed. I can't help but notice that if Peter has a mother-in-law, that means that Peter is married. And isn't that interesting that the archetype of the Pope had a wife? It kind of rounds out a little bit my impression of who Peter may have been, not only that he had a wife, but that he and his wife shared their home 
with his mother-in-law. So we learn that she is in bed with a fever, and Jesus then goes to aid her, and we get this miracle story in just two short sentences, all contained just in one verse. And these are the words. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. First, notice that he took her by the hand. And this is so typical of Jesus, an observant Jew in his day, and we know he was an observant Jew. They'd just come from the synagogue that day. Uh, But an observant Jew would never touch a woman who was not his wife. And especially, you would not touch somebody who was sick, who would be unclean. And yet, Jesus goes and touches her hand and holds her hand. And I think perhaps for us, we can have a little bit better understanding of how that might have sounded to people of his time because, well, have you had that experience lately where maybe you see somebody in a commercial or on a a show on TV and people are standing way too close and they're not wearing masks and you just want to tell them that's unsafe? Um, It's going to be interesting for us. And let me be clear, I am all for safety and adherence to what we're being told for the betterment of everybody. But there will be a time when we will have to reprogram And we could look to Jesus, in a way, as an example, who reached across barriers, doing things that the culture around him had been programmed to not do, but reaching out when it's time for us to touch one another again. So the next thing is he lifted her up. This doesn't sound that remarkable in the English translation, lifted her up. But perhaps a better translation of what the Greek words say is he raised her up. You may be thinking of that hymn, and he will raise them up on the last day. It's the same word as Jesus' own resurrection. It's even been said by some that this may be the first teaching on the resurrection in the Gospels. He holds her hand and raises her up. And then the fever left her, and she was healed, and we are told she begins to serve them. This detail um, actually has always kind of bothered me. It may bother some of you. I mean, think about, it seems a little unfair, doesn't it, that she's been sick and bad and perhaps even close to death, and then as soon as she's healed... Not a moment passes and she's doing the dishes and setting things out and taking care of the guests. Um, I have heard that this passage has been used and perhaps even still is used to try to make a case that the Bible says a woman's role is a domestic one. But there, again, is more to what is going on. First, when Jesus heals, it's important to realize that a part of almost every healing story is not just the removal of the sickness, but the restoring of the individual to their body, to health, and to their life, their community, their people. And in this case, the woman is not only freed of illness, but she's restored to her life. It is her home, 
And it is a pride that she gets to take to serve those who have come as guests. In the, in the Middle East, this is a very important aspect of life, is serving your guests. It's part of being whole. It's part of what we call shalom. And to serve and to be able to serve, when you think of it, really is a gift. I like the way that the biblical scholar Victoria Garvey puts it as she comments on this passage. She says, In the world in which we live, service is a term usually for lowly jobs. When we've become successful, others serve us. But the Jesus we meet in the Gospels, who did not come to be served, but to serve, teaches us that Service is the higher, even the highest calling. To serve for the sake of others is the mark of true discipleship. And the word used in the Greek to describe what she is doing as she is serving these others is a version of the word you may have heard, deacon. And all of this is captured in just a few words contained in a single verse. In service, we find healing. And in the touch of Jesus, we find resurrection. When I think of the high calling that it is as a Christian to serve others, and of the word deacon, I recall the night before my ordination. So I was ordained in the Diocese of Los Angeles, and that year there happened to be many of us that were being ordained together. And let me explain, if you're not familiar with the tradition in the Episcopal Church, you may have discerned a call to be a priest, but you don't get ordained first as a priest. First you're ordained as a deacon, and you serve as an ordained deacon for perhaps four, six, or more months before then you have another ordination and become a priest. And so we had 14 of us all about to be ordained as deacons in the morning for the first time being ordained. And, uh, and the bishop came, and he was a character. Um, he was a former football player for the Denver Broncos. He was probably 6'4", 6'5", a massive person. And, and he sat down with all of us, and he shared with us about what was going to take place in the morning when we became deacons. Um, First of all, actually, he said a little bit of advice. He said, when you become an ordained clergy, don't become a professional. He said, I know some priests who are professionals. They're jerks. (laughs) Actually, he used a different word that I wouldn't feel comfortable saying from the pulpit. (laughs) Ministry should be service. It's vocation. It's calling. Not professional. That was his point. But then the next thing he said is, always remember in the rest of your life as an ordained individual that your first ordination is as a deacon, as someone who serves. And you may later become ordained as a priest, and even later, some of you may become ordained as a bishop. But fundamentally, you are ordained as a deacon to serve. And in fact we who have been baptized into the faith, we are all ordained to serve. 
the words that we vow, that, that, that we commit ourselves to in the vows, they are words committing ourselves to a life of serving in Christ's name, of bringing about his healing, being a participant in it, in our lives. And today, the day of our annual meeting here at St. John's, is a great time to reflect on who we are as a parish. And many of you have, I hope, heard me mention this in the past, this observance or observation that I have had of this community is that this church is animated by the spirit of service. I think it's fascinating to be here in this region, this area of Washington, which is well known as a company town. And there are good aspects of that and there are challenging aspects of that. But one part of what it means to be this particular company town is that none of us are very far from a spirit of service. So many people give their lives to serve and they have come here to do it in many, many cases, ways that are extremely unglamorous. And I am moved by that. And I feel that that moves and animates the community of this church. That is one way that we as Christians called to live out our baptismal covenant overlap with the spirit of Washington as at its best, being people of service. And again, today the annual meeting has been a chance for me as I've prepared my remarks for later today um, to reflect on what we have experienced over the last 12 months. We've experienced a lot. There have been joys. There have been some opportunities that we've lived into. And of course, there have been major challenges. And through it all, I have been so moved to see over and over and over again people from St. John's showing up to serve. Often showing up in ways where people aren't drawing attention to themselves. They just arrive and find a way that they can be of help. It goes from those who have served over this past year on vestry, the way that they have shown up for this church, especially our wardens, our staff, so many lay leaders and so many capacities, tasks for, task forces and committees that we have, but also just those who have picked the phone up and called somebody that they know might need a call. This is service, all of it. I have a belief that in churches we shouldn't use the word volunteer, we should use the word minister always. It's never just volunteering, it's ministry, always. Whether you are an usher or on the flower guild or uh, doing outreach, helping migrant families who are moving to our community, all of it is ministry. And it is not a burden to live into a life of service. This time of sickness, where literal sickness is covering the land, we get to be a part of a breaking in of healing. Healing that's going to continue breaking in more and more as we get the goodness of being able to gather and be together. We're going to take the lessons that we've learned from this year. We're going to continue sharing our worship beyond just the physical walls of this space. And I also hope and pray that we continue building the relationships that have started to blossom in special ways because of what we've gone through this year with our neighbors throughout this city. 
But we have this opportunity to live into this calling. We are all deacons. At our best, we are all Peter's mother-in-law, made whole, that we are then able to respond to that call to serve and in the serving to be raised up. Amen.